Well, we're going to learn about rejoicing and smiling, and, and so let me show me your best smile. I want to see those teeth. Come on, let me see you smile. Smile? Alegre? Happy? <laughs> smiling and, and joy is something this world needs a lot, needs more of, right? Especially when we're in traffic and someone cuts you off. How about if we were like, hey, come on in. That would be like life-changing and miraculous. It would be incredible. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, our, our sermon title for today is called Three Party Lessons. Three Party Lessons. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your word, and we pray that it would speak into our hearts and our lives, and we want to uh, be able to believe your word, not just hear it and let it go in our ears and, and rattle around and then be forgotten, but we want it to go in our ears and into our hearts, and we want to believe the promises that you give to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to learn three party lessons today from Jesus, okay? We are in Exodus chapter 23, verses 9 through 19, but the the three lessons we're going to learn, we're going to learn how to send the invitations, where the invitations go and who the invitations are to. Secondly, we're going to learn about the party supplies. Always got to get those party supplies, you know, the poppers and whatever else you like to have at your parties. And then we're going to learn how to celebrate God or what to do at the party time uh, when, when we're supposed to throw these parties. So three things that we're going to learn today. So let's get right into the Word of God and, and uh, see what, it, what it's going to teach us today. Chapter 23 of Exodus, verse 6 says, You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So remember, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and God has redeemed them. He has rescued them and brought them out of Egypt and he's creating his own nation, his own people. And his people, he's going to teach us, we're going to find out today, he wants them to celebrate him and remember all the wonderful things that he has done for them, and be happy to smile all the time. He wants his people to be happy people. He's very concerned about that. Because these people, Israel, are going to be his people in the world. They're the light of God to this world. They're they're the people that represent God, and God is not sad. God is not bummed out all the time. He is not a bummer, and he is not boring. But when we go to church, how many of us are bored or even sad? Or it's the time of our week where we catch up on our Zs because <laughs> it's boring, and this just that's not the way God intended a relationship with him to look. 
So here we are, we have come in Exodus where God has taken his people out of Egypt and he's now giving them these rules, these laws on how he wants them to act as a nation, as a country. And he says, first of all, you, you don't, he gives these rules about how to treat other people. And so we're going to take these and we're going to kind of frame them in the way of saying these are party invitations. Who is he inviting to his party? And we see here he's inviting poor people. Number one, poor people. He said, you should not pervert the judgment of the poor. That, that would bum you out if you were poor and something bad happened to you and People were coming against you just because you were poor. Well, God says he is very concerned about the poor and he wants to invite them to his party. But he says, I don't want to invite the wicked. The wicked. Those who desire to live wicked lives. He says here, keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous for I will not justify the wicked. All right, And he says, I do want to invite another group of people besides the poor. I want to invite strangers and people who are not even Jewish, not even Israelites. I want them to be part of the party, to be part of my people. I'm inviting everybody into this community, this nation. They don't have to be born here. I want them to feel welcome even if they're not born here. Okay, so this is God's heart. He wants to invite people in. And so we want to take this heart and make it part of the DNA of our church where we are concerned about immigrants and we're concerned about people who are poor. And so that's why we have a food bank, right? And that's why we have, where we're praying for an ESL class. I mentioned it last week. And I'm going to mention it again. We are praying and we want God to start an ESL class here so that people are welcome and feel welcomed into the family of God and can learn that we can all learn the same language to be able to uh, communicate and study God's word together. Amen? Amen. So be praying for that. You know, there's, uh, did you know that there's 165,000 people in Denver who don't speak English? 165,000. And, and there are some good Spanish-speaking churches, but um, there could always be more. There could be, they could learn English, and, and, and uh, the, the city of Denver actually has a higher average. 21% of our city doesn't speak English. 21%. That's one in five people don't even speak English. That's pretty crazy. So we want to be a... a, a church that's inviting these people in and that's welcoming and not segregating ourselves to our own little tribe of you have to look like this, you have to dress like this and have these tattoos, you're not really welcome here. We want to accept everybody and invite them into the party or celebration. So when we think about party invitations, who do they go to? They go to the poor and those who don't feel welcome and that's just the deal. That's the deal. Now I feel, I fear that some churches are more concerned about being popular than about really ministering to their communities, don't you? You see, you feel, yeah, you get an amen right there, right? It's, it's a bummer. And I feel like I want to have God's heart, and this is what I see God's heart is. 
you, you, we're not going to be the most popular because it's uncomfortable to be around people that are not like you. And so everyone who is concerned about being comfortable going to church, guess what? They're not going to come. Here, anyway, they're going to go to a place that's comfortable, that's easy to go to. And that's just the reality. And there are churches for those who just want to be comfortable. This isn't that church. We're not going to be that church. And that's okay. We want to serve the Lord and we want to have his heart for the people that uh, need help, the poor and the needy. All right? So that's section one, learning about the party invitations. So now we're going to go to section two, learning about the party flies. And this is learning to trust the Lord more and more and more as we rejoice in him. So it says in verse 10, six years you shall sow your land and gather its produce. But in the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow. That's wild. And the poor, that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner, you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. So here we see God in his new country of Israel, he wanted to have compassion on poor people and even on the animals. And what he's saying here is your stuff, people, my children, your stuff is not all about you. In other words, let's not even call it your stuff, your land, your job, your bank account. Let's just not call it yours anymore. It's mine. When we hold on to our personal property so tightly, God will rebuke us for not being compassionate. It's mine. It's my truck. It's my house. It's my property. God says, all your stuff is not yours. You don't have those rights. You surrendered them when you came to Jesus and said, you're my boss. You're my Lord. You can use all my stuff. God would say to us, you can use all my stuff that I let you borrow and I give to you to take care of you and your family for six years. But I also want you to use it to take care of those in need for one year out of seven, he says. In that seventh year, what's going to happen is you're going to have to trust me like all the poor people do for six years. You're going to have to do it one year out of seven. You're going to have to trust that in that sixth year, I am going to provide for you. Or in the seventh year, or in some other way, like I'm going to, I'm going to give you enough in the sixth year so it'll provide through the seventh, or if, it, if I don't provide enough in that sixth year and it gets to the seventh year and you have nothing, you're, you're going to have to trust me that somehow I'll, I'll send birds from heaven or I'll do something miraculous to provide for you, but I will not let you die for obeying me. That's hard for us. It was probably hard for them. You know how I know that? Because they never did it. For the next 490 years, they will never obey this command. Ever. 
they just don't trust God that much. And so God will take them in captivity, and the captivity lasts for 70 years because the ground needed 70 years to replenish. They didn't give it its one year per seven. And so for 490 years divided by seven is 70 years. So they were in captivity in Babylon for seven years so the land could get its Sabbath or its rest. Isn't that crazy? God says, you have to trust in me. And if you don't trust in me, there will be consequences. There will be consequences. Is that because God is mean and a big grumpy pants? No, it's because he wants us to learn to be his children. Just because you have what you need and you could plant the ground seventh, the seventh year doesn't, doesn't mean you should. He says, listen to me and obey me. Let's continue going. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, the son of your female servant, and the stranger may be refreshed. Uh, we just read that, didn't we? Okay. So we see there the compassion for the servants and even the animals. So the desire of God, he's, he's teaching us here, is that all his creatures should and deserve rest. They, they should have rest. Not work super hard for him. In other words, being his child is not about getting burnt out and getting tired. That's the opposite of God's will for your life. If you're burnt out, we're not doing this thing right. Serving God must be done out of a place of being refreshed. Refreshed. He's very concerned about his people being rested. He even wants his animals rested and the servants of his people to be rested. Are you ready to serve the kids downstairs? Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Are you ready to lead worship? Are you ready to teach? Have you been refreshed by resting in God's presence? That's the question that will lead you in those other serving ways. Have you been spending time being refreshed by God, learning to receive from Him ministry and Him washing your feet and Him pouring life into you, then all those other things will flow naturally. Seminary doesn't qualify us for serving God. A life of humble faith does. And so God establishes this Sabbath thing and this whole Sabbath thing, every time you hear Sabbath, you need to think in your mind, restfulness, depending on God, a life of dependence upon God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we have one of the most important verses uh, in the whole Bible talking about how you and me are to serve God. And it's, it's, it's sourced from this these uh, verses about the um, Sabbath and, and in the land and the Sabbath day, it's, it comes from that. That's the background of it. But in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers or servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives 
life. Now, we're talking about a party. We're talking about party supplies. What do we do? What are we talking about here? How do I get ready? How do I get supplied for the party God wants me to be involved with? The rejoicing in God, the, the life that is happy in God and rejoices. You have to learn to let Him bless you. The, the, the sufficiency, it comes from God and it's given to you for free by waiting upon Him. By the Holy Spirit, he grants to us, he gives to us the supplies that we need. So the invitations are to everybody who's poor, to everybody who's not welcome. The supply is his grace. The supplies are his love, all that he does to make us sufficient. And it's not by a letter. He doesn't give you a letter. These are the supplies you need. Go to the store and get them. You ever have a party like that? Oh, he made a party run, right? Beer run. <laughs> no. What God does is he says, I supply the party needs for you. I supply the rejoicing ability to you. I give the life that you will need to party. In other words, I am the life of the party. Jesus says that. Huh, I wonder if we see any stories about that in the New Testament. Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. But let's get to verse 13. In all that I have said to you, be circumspect, that means wise, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. So all these laws that he's giving were to promote a life of trusting and seeking God, or or knowing God and truth. He's saying, don't give up on, on your relationship with me because another God is easier to serve or looks more appealing or has something different to author. He says, don't even consider other ways. There is no truth in them. Don't go to someone else's party. This is just my party. Okay? You don't need to understand other gods or talk about them or you don't need to be skilled at refuting them and, and, and be able to explain why my party is better than their party. Just don't worry about them. Just focus on me. My word, my promises are all that you need. Jesus later becomes the word of God incarnate, which means his name is the word. He is everything God would speak to us, but in a person form. He is a person, but he is God's word, God's message to us. So it's really easy to keep our heart fixed on him because he takes the word and plants it in our hearts where it always lives and is always growing. Him. It's a relationship with Him. So He says, don't think about other gods and don't worry about other gods because all you have to do is focus on Me. I will provide everything that you need. I am the Word. I am the truth. I am the life. It's just a relationship with Me that gets you there. 
that gets you what you need. There's no list of party supplies. The party supply is connection with me. It's relationship with me. All right. Section three. Learning to celebrate God. This is party time. Check this out. He's going to give us three different parties. Three different parties to celebrate me, God says. God's kingdom is not supposed to be a drag. Ever heard people think or people think the God of the Old Testament was such a jerk? What? He, he literally is, gives them a continual celebration all year long. Like, well, what's, what are we going to do next? Well, I think it's a party next week to celebrate God. Well, what's like a month after that? I think it's another party. And what's like next summer? I think we're partying then too. It's like continual party and celebration is what relationship with God was supposed to look like and entail. How can you tell a Christian? Well, for the most in this world, the answer is the people who have the least amount of fun. That is what generally is thought in the world. Oh, they don't, they don't go get drunk with us at our parties. So they don't know what fun is. Hangovers are fun. Being drunk and puking is fun. Going on benders is fun. Really? God does desire us to have fun and have joy. But it's a higher and deeper level. So the problem is most Christians think, oh, our fun is later in heaven. So right now I need to act like this. Are you happy to follow Jesus? What is he doing in your life to bring you joy? Oh, I don't know. I'm focused on how hard life is right now. It's just so hard. Man, that is not the intention of these celebrations. Do you know why so many Christians don't celebrate? It's because they think about themselves. If they were to think about God and set their focus and attention on God, they would actually have something to celebrate, something to rejoice about. Do you know why so many Christians do struggle with depression and with, with sadness that's just down in deep places? Same reason. Their focus and their attention is on their life, their circumstances, instead of all that Jesus has done for them, is doing for them, and will do for them. So how do we minister to these people? Well, God explains to us that he wants us to feast with him. He gives us these three celebrations. Now let's look at them. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. And you shall keep a feast of unleavened bread, where you shall eat unleavened seven days, as I commanded you, at the appointed time of the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. 
The feast of harvest is the next one. The first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. Okay, we're going to learn more in depth about those feasts later in the book of Exodus. We're just studying today the fact that we're supposed to feast before God. Um, But look, it says that everybody is important. Everyone is supposed to come. No one should feel left out or should be left out. Everyone gets equal access to rejoice in God. No one has any less right to rejoice in God than anyone else, and it has nothing to do with your circumstances. The slaves and the slave owners were all supposed to come and rejoice in God party as hard as they could. Everyone had equal access to this joy. How many people do we know, though, that say, well, I haven't been given the joy of the Lord. It's my spiritual gift to be a bummer to everybody. It has to do with the one that we rejoice in. You have all been given the right to be the happiest person in your life. You can be happy if you rejoice in God, in Jesus. You have been given perfect access to Jesus, so rejoice. You can. You have every right to. And if the enemy comes to you and and lies to you and says, you can't be happy today, look at your circumstances. You just got your arm chopped off. You just got cancer. You've been betrayed by everybody in your life. The enemy is still lying to you saying you have to be sad. Because you don't. God's joy is your birthright as his children. He has given it to you. And the enemy is so good at stealing that away from us. You can't be happy. Your husband's a goober. He doesn't treat you right. There's no way you can smile and rejoice in the Lord. You can't be happy. Your parents are dumb. You can't be happy. Anything. Jesus is good and awesome, even if everything in your life is terrible. Everything. Well, you just don't understand the complexities of the human mind because... People can't be happy all the time if their life is bad. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. Jesus is good, always. And you can have access to that joy, always. See, his goodness, his kindness, his love, his faithfulness is so clear that it it really can't be questioned. I mean, even unbelievers say, yeah, Jesus was a great guy. But we question it all the time. We question whether he's really good and whether he really loves us. We do it all the time. And Jesus understands that, and that's why he gives us something to turn to when we question these wonderful attributes of God. And those things he gives us are called promises. Promises. Always go back to the promises. When you hit a bump and you're like, wait a minute, I don't feel happy. 
I don't really have that joy deep inside me. Don't turn to, oh, I, I got to get, get down on my knees and try harder to be God's child. Don't turn to, oh, I got I to gotta obey better. I got to do more. Don't turn to those things. Turn to promises. Not your promise. Oh, I promise God I'll be happy. Not your promises. His promises to you. The way to rejoice in God is to grasp his promises by faith and to hold on to them. There are always promises that have already been fulfilled, and then there are wonderful promises that have yet to be fulfilled. There's awesome promises that we can look to and say, look, this was already fulfilled, and then there's even more wonderful promises that say this will be fulfilled. But they're all here in the Word of God for us to investigate, to hold on to, to depend on to. Your Bible should be very worn out because we run, hit these bumps all the time. And we have one recourse, we have one plan of action. We turn to the Word of God, we look for a promise. And we hold on to it. We grab it by faith. Maybe you open up to the book of Psalms and you read, those who put their trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. And, and you're like, yeah, Lord, I, I don't want to be, I want to trust in you. I want to trust in you. So I'm going to hold on to that. So you highlight, you take a highlighter and you highlight it in your Bible. And then the next time when you're feeling down again, you can go back to that same promise. And you can remember and hold on to it again and say, hey, last time God would fulfill this promise. He kept his word. And so this time I'm going to rejoice and expect him to do it again. It's like my dad always said, God is writing a resume of his own faithfulness in your life. As you hit a hard time, and then you look to his word and depend on a promise and say, I'm going to trust in the Lord, even though I don't see a way out. I don't see how we could do it, but I'm going to trust in him anyway. And he, he comes through like he always does. Then the next time you learn to do it again, and then again, quicker and quicker, because I got the resume. Read it, devil. I'm not going to doubt anymore. I'm going to trust in God's word Again and again, I'm going to depend on it. God welcomes anyone who would challenge him to keep his promises. So if you find a promise in the word of God, guess what? You have every right to grab it, to claim it as being your own. That God will fulfill that in your life. This is the real name it, claim it. You've heard name it, claim it in the bad context where they say, God says, I'm going to be rich, so I'm going to be rich. And that's not in the word of God. His promises, though, is that you are rich because you're his child. And you don't, shouldn't ever worry about money because you can call upon him and he will supply all your needs richly in Christ Jesus. He will never let you die for trusting him in this context. He welcomes everyone who would challenge him. You know what, God, you say 
that if I trust in you in this way and trust this promise, you'll come through. Well, I'm going to put you to the test. God says, bring it, bro. Do it. Trust me and see what happens. I will not be a debtor to any man, God says. I will, I will fulfill my word always. So we look for these promises and we can depend on them. At the end of anyone who tests the Lord in his promises is that it will be yes and amen or it will be fulfilled, it will be done. That's it. It will happen. So, now we get to verse 18 back in Exodus, and he gives us three kind of teachings about rejoicing in the Lord and, and partying for Jesus. Look what he says. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of the sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land shall bring into the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Weird. We'll get to that last one in a second. These, these rules for his party, these are the party rules, you could call them. Section four, party rules. Just made that up. All right. So you, it's a party foul if you break one of these rules. This just means that they need to follow the feast protocol because it's going to be a symbol for generations to come of Jesus. You need to do these feasts the way that I say to do them because it's not really about you. I'm going to use this partying to tell people about Jesus. I'm using these feasts and your rejoicing to tell people about Jesus. Look at the first rule. It says, you know, don't offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. What does leaven speak of in the Bible? Sin, right? Such well-taught people. I love it. And the lamb of God, the sacrifice, had no sin. So you can't offer leaven with the sacrifice. Don't, you're messing up the picture. Jesus was the lamb of God who had no sin. And that's why his sacrifice means so much. Is because it was an unleavened sacrifice. Okay. Then he says, you need to fully consume the fat. Dana's like, gross. Corbin's like, yeah. Where's Corbin? <laughs> Corbin loves the fat of everything we eat. Anyway, uh, this means that we're to believe and fully trust God's way. You're, you're taking in all the, the, the full sacrifice. You're consuming it all. It means we enjoy God with full faith. We're, we're not trusting in anything else. We, we eat all the fat of the sacrifice, okay? Then it says, the first, fruits of, uh, the, first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring in. Our fruit, party foul number two, is our fruit is the, the, the work that God does in our lives and he gets to enjoy it. In other words, his grace produces fruit that he enjoys. So, we enjoy God by bringing him joy. So, the party foul of that would be to say, God, look how great I am. Look at all the wonderful things I'm doing for you. 
And that's what I'm going to rejoice in, all that I do for you. Yay! And God says, no, that's not what brings me joy. What brings me joy is what I am producing in you without you trying. With you just trusting me. I will make you loving, I will make you kind, and I'll produce good works in you. But don't rejoice in your bringing good works. Just rejoice in the works that I'm doing in you. So that's a party foul. We don't want to do that one. Now, we get to you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And this is a party foul. And I have no clue why. Just kidding. <laughs> but the truth, like, what does this mean? It seems really strange to have just a random command, right? I mean, God could have just as said, don't wear purple shoes with pink pants. And, and we would have been like, great, I wasn't planning to anyway. I mean, who plans on boiling a young goat in its mother's milk? You'd have to get a goat and then get a whole bunch of the mother's milk and squirt it all out and then heat it up and then put the baby in the milk. It doesn't make any sense at all. I would never do that. Why would I do that? That is just bizarro world command. Okay? But I don't think God wastes time. I don't think God has an intention of just confusing us. I think this, there is a real meaning here. Now, as I went through all the commentaries and everything like that, and people have all these ideas of what, what this maybe is. What does it mean? And so they did find some pagans would sometimes do this boiling. Well, they would kind of boil a, a baby goat in its mother's milk. Not really. They would just kill them together. Uh, a pregnant mama goat. What's a mama goat called? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> they would do this, and then they would take the the soup that they made out of that, and they would sprinkle it on their land, and it would magically make their land more fertile. But I look at that command, and it makes no sense with the context of what he's, God's talking about. And all of the other commands also, or other uh, commentary mm, lessons or reasons for this, I didn't find very many that made any sense at all. Why would God throw in? And a lot of them would say, well, you know what? We don't know why God said to do this, but we just got to follow the rule anyway. So the Jews over the past, you guys know this, but the Jews have taken this one command, this one sentence, and they've said, no cheeseburgers. <laughs> right, because that makes total sense. No, but they say the meat may have touched the, 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 might be a baby goat, and it may have touched its mother's milk, and so the cheese is made from the milk, and, and the milk, and it will boil in your stomach together, and then you'll be breaking this command, which is dumb. I, there's no other word to describe it. And they waste millions of dollars enforcing this, and you go to Jerusalem today, and I went there, and I got a hamburger, and they didn't offer me cheese. You couldn't even get cheese. I was so upset. Even if it was kosher, you still couldn't. Ah. Anyway, so I'm just saying a lot to say 
That's a dumb interpretation. Okay? So if I'm looking at the Word of God, God very much uses pictures and types and symbology. Is that a word? We'll say it is. Symbolism. He's very consistent in his symbolism in the Word of God, isn't he? We see that all the time. So I look at this story and I see uh, goats are generally deceptive. They, they speak of being deceptive. Okay? And, and uh, we, we know that because before this, we had the story of Esau. Remember Esau? And that whole story where uh, Esau's mom said, make a couple goats and eat them, and, and uh, they were deceiving Isaac, and it was a bummer. So, goat, so the goats kind of think of deceptiveness or man's way of doing, the, doing these things. And then I think of well, where does this goat come from, and it's mother. What's the mother of deception or the father of lies? Satan, right? So I see a deception. I see a, a source of the deception, the mother. And then I see cooking. And cooking in the Bible a lot of time thinks of man's way of doing things or man's way of thinking. You take all the inputs and you put it in your brain and you cook it. You think and you come out with thoughts and interpretations about what, what, how the world works. And, and Esau, when he did cooking in the Bible, he ended up being very tired. And so man's ways always make them tired, as opposed to God's ways that bring us rest. Okay? So what I kind of come up with, with this, you shall not boil the young mother's inner goat's monkey, I don't know. But what I kind of think the meaning of it ends up being is man's way of thinking will deceive you. So obey these laws to rejoice in God and celebrate him. And don't think that you know better how to be God's people than God does. You know, how to live your life. You don't know better than God does. His feasts are perfect. The way he says to rejoice in him is perfect. And don't get confused. Satan wants to get you down in the dumps. He does not want you to rejoice in God. So he's going to throw everything at you to get you to say, well, I know God says to rejoice, but I know a better way. And a better way for me to live my life is to complain about everything. Right? Instead of simply by faith accepting God's goodness. And God's love. So I think this law, this weird law, out of nowhere, would have actually made a lot of sense to the people. Oh, you don't want us to be deceived into thinking we know what's best, but you want us to trust in you, even if it sounds weird to rejoice all the time. Why, you know, why does it matter if I celebrate God three times a year? Why does it matter? To rejoice in God and to celebrate Him, to trust in His ways and His promises, this will keep you from being deceived. Why does God place this here? Because we are ripe for being deceived. It happens all the time. And I'm going to just explain to you real quick how this happens. Our flesh starts thinking. Okay? Our flesh starts thinking. And these are the things our flesh thinks. I don't need this feast. I don't need a lamb. I don't need to get rid of leaven or sin. 
I don't need to fully trust in God. I don't need to live my life for his glory and his pleasure alone. My life doesn't really matter that much. And I don't need to celebrate God. And then our flesh takes all those I don't needs and it replaces them with lies of things we do need. It it tells us things that the flesh thinks we need. Like I need to focus on my life. I need to worry. What does the Bible say? Don't worry. But my flesh says, I need to worry. And if I don't worry, the world's going to explode or something. I need to stress out. I need to like take control and own it. And, and I need to, to measure up. I can't let go. I can't trust him. I need control. I need strength. I need more. I need less. I'm not happy. I'm not complete. Those are all the things the flesh thinks. Your flesh and my flesh, we all think that. That's how the flesh thinks. But God gives us his word so that we can see Jesus better when we have the Holy Spirit helping us. And everything in his word points to Jesus. The Spirit always shows us Jesus in the Old Testament and these laws and these commands, they help us. And so we have these weird commands to feast and rejoice. But are we going to trust them? Are we going to rejoice in Jesus? They point to him. And our lives also point to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like these laws point to him, if we rejoice in him and if we celebrate him. So the lesson for today is Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Oh, but I wish I had the ability to delight or rejoice in the Lord, but I just don't know how. I just don't know how. Well, Matthew eleven nineteen. look at what Jesus says and does says, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners, but wisdom is shown by the right, by, to be right by its results. How was Jesus doing these parties? How did Jesus rejoice in God? He just rejoiced. His joy was infectious. He smiled. And his smile is basically all that people needed to see. His smile, his rejoicing, got results. It works. It matters. When you rejoice in the Lord, it matters. We're supposed to tell people how much of a blessing Jesus is, what Jesus is doing to bless us, and how grateful we are for his grace and mercy. Not how much of a bummer it is to follow Jesus and to go to Bible study and to pray. Rejoice in the Lord. The kindness of God is what leads people to repentance, so we're supposed to be sharing and rejoicing in that kindness. Tell people about the invitations. <clears throat> oh, you're poor? And you're, you're uncomfortable in the world and you have great need? Great, you're invited to rejoice with me in all that God has done. You are accepted into the family of God's grace. Tell them about the party supplies. 
You know, as you're rejoicing in the Lord, be rejoicing that he supplies all that is needed. You say, well, I have really big needs. I have big problems and big sin. God supplies it all. He will take care of it all. Call upon him and he supplies it like that. And then share that. God gives the resources you need. And then thirdly, tell people about party time. Jesus will meet with them at every time of their life, every season of their life. That's a time to rejoice in God. Jesus will be there. And see, when Jesus is there, when Jesus attends your party, he's like the guest of honor, and the party's always amazing. It's always full of joy. Every party Jesus went to was rocking. It was fantastic. And our lives can be that witness to Jesus and his love to other people when we decide to party, to rejoice in God continually. Amen?